Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Interesting column in uh, the National Post today from John Iveson. It's, uh, it's time to cancel Trudeau's COVID-19 morning show and, and get back to Parliament. The government owes it to Canadians to get back into the House of Commons and introduce a fiscal update so citizens can see the extent of the mess that we are in. Uh, and, of course, that's available for you if you want to take a peek at it uh, at the National Post. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Hope you're doing well, too, Scott. Uh, thank you for that. All you know, as I mentioned, I've been watching these every single day and taking notes because that's what we're paid to do, and and sure. that's my my job and such. And I've noticed that these pages are getting smaller and smaller every single day. Right. Um, how can we say this about perhaps Justin Trudeau, but not about the other premiers or Doug Ford? Well, you're right, and I I think that's what a lot of people, including John Iveson and even Brian Lilly of the Toronto Sun and and others are sort of looking at. If it was uh, being done on a daily basis, and as you say, the the list of things that we were writing down or that we were synthesizing information was extensive, then yeah, I think there is enough to justify having it on a daily basis. I think now as the list is getting smaller and smaller, I'm not saying that necessarily you have to cut it right today, but I think it should be phased out to some degree. Like, for example, in the city of Toronto, uh, John Tory, the mayor, is now only doing it, I believe, three days a week instead of five. So he's obviously realized that it's it's time to bring it down. I don't know what um, Ontario Premier Doug Ford will do. As you said right off the top, it's obviously very important on a local basis, so probably a daily for a premier, any premier, be it, uh, you know, Doug Ford here, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, etc. All of them are going to have to do this on a daily basis for a while. So that's understandable. But yeah, if the list is getting this small, and I agree with you that I don't find a lot of things are being discussed that are wildly pertinent with Justin Trudeau's daily pressers. I think it's more becoming an issue of sort of a campaign style mode more than anything else. Here's what we're talking about. Here's the amount of money that I'm giving to, you know, X group, X individual, and we're going from there. It it becomes a little bit less important and a bit more pointless. Again, I don't think he has to eliminate the whole thing as of today, but I think that they should probably start phasing it out and balance it out by showing up and appearing more often in Parliament. And what I noticed too, Michael, with this exercise is that the same questions are being asked and there's no answers to them. And yeah. you just, you know, and again, I don't mean to attack the prime minister this way. I mean, lots of people who listen to this show know that I'm not a big fan. You know, I just, I'm not sure he's qualified. No, I know he's not. Um, but, but you know, it seems that he just, whenever anyone asks him about an issue, it's like he's reaching back in his head and he's pulling out the prepared answer. Yeah. And then he's reading that, you know, and again, if he would give us some some answers to the questions, then this might be worthwhile. Yes, I agree with you. Now, look, and before people start attacking me, because I worked for Stephen Harper, and that was a criticism that he had to deal with for a long period of time, where they basically limit the amount of questions. They sort of pick and choose whatever they wanted to hear from, answered a few, and that was it. That was obviously not the best model to use, and it was something I was critical of the time as well. Even when I was in the Prime Minister's office, I had suggested them that was not the best way to handle things. And many years after I left, I said the same thing. It doesn't mean that any Prime Minister, including Justin Trudeau, doesn't have the right to 
see a whole assortment of media outside his, you know, you know, standing next to him when he's at the lectern and then pick a few. That's perfectly fine. But the problem is you're absolutely right. Whatever he is answering, <clears throat> not only is it limited, he's sort of reaching back and not really gra- and he's grasping at straws a lot of the time to the point that his answers often don't answer the question that's being posed to him in the first place. If that's the case, Scott, then, you know, unfortunately, people like John Iveson and others are completely correct. What is the point of this if we're not learning anything new, if he's not telling us anything tangible, if he's not giving us something to think about more than just for a few minutes that we have to sort of think about for a day, go back and research, you know, try to maybe come up with follow-up questions that are pertinent, etc., so, yes, I think that certainly the limitation of questions is a real problem, but the answers that this prime minister is giving, and look, I've made no secret of the fact that I do not think this man is qualified to be prime minister. I never have since day one. And, yeah, you can use it as a partisan argument, but the proof is in the pudding. He never has a very strong, powerful answer, generally speaking, to any question. And now in the age of COVID-19, the answers have to be not only answered properly, but intelligently and to the point where they give important information or provide important information for the people who are listening, that being the media and that also being the people who attend these daily pressers or watch it on TV, listen to them on the radio, etc. So, yes, it becomes a very pointless exercise if the information that's being discussed there or the answers that the prime minister is providing are not on point. Has this exercise become too partisan? Well, is this is this being used as because let's be honest, anybody who's a leader now and who has this platform, it's a huge advantage. Yeah, look, I can't I can't be critical of that because of the worlds that I've lived in, existed in and worked in. So I expect there to be some politicization of the process. I don't think there's any way to get around it. So, yes, these sorts of speeches do become political to some degree. Now, in fairness, a lot of the Canadian premiers have tried to limit it as best they can, and many mayors of different cities have done the same thing. That is all to their credit. But it's hard not to have politics be a part of it when, quite frankly, this is a political process. The man, you know, who actually is speaking at the lectern, that being Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, is a politician who was elected by the Canadian people, or at least some of them. And for that reason, there's going to be an element of that. But does it reduce the importance of these daily pressers? Absolutely. Does it kind of cheapen the debate a little bit when people are just expecting things that are helpful to themselves, their families, their neighbors, their communities, and it becomes more like, say, you know, a a political leader just basically announcing a whole bunch of things that we're doing, mostly spending, obviously on emergency relief measures, but things that, you know, he's basically using to sort of say down the road, be it six months, 12 months, 18 months from now, look at all the things I did for the Canadian people on a daily basis. If that's the way a lot of people start to perceive it, that becomes extremely problematic. So the fact that it's a bit political, I can understand that. If it becomes too politicized, I think that's where the problem starts to play in. Uh, we remember this all started with the, the Rideau College presentation and coming out from behind the black door and such, because initially his family, his wife had had tested positive for COVID uh, nineteen, and there was quarantine uh, a quarantine issue there. Uh, obviously, that has since passed. She's up. I, I under from what I understand with the fa- with the family at the yeah. uh, 
at the uh, the Public prime minister point. retreat. Yeah. 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 So uh, is it time to move beyond the black door and get into a position in the offices with the ministers behind you, like most of the premiers are doing? Or is this sending a message for us to stay home? We got to stay home. I'm I'm going to do this from my house. Well, look. I mean, whenever you create some sort of a press or you have some sort of an event. The backdrop is obviously very important. You know, I mean, any prime minister, especially in normal times, be it the man I work for, my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, or others, what they do is they have a team around them that assemble, that sort of decide what is the best setup, who would be, what would be the best backdrop in terms of the color scheme, platform, people behind you, etc. So there is some importance to that. I think that Justin Trudeau and his team recognize that this black door model, as you've described it, has sort of become something that most Canadians accept as being, pardon me, the typical backdrop for these daily press conferences on COVID-19. If you were to change it, would it be a big deal? Not necessarily, unless you want to maintain some level of consistency. But again, I think if you're able to combine it to some degree where you basically, pardon me, reduce the number of days that the press conference is held and you spend more time in front of Parliament, you can then have two different podiums or two different lecterns, one at the House of Commons or somewhere close by, and you can continue with the black door if you wish to as well. So I think it can be balanced off. I understand why they're using it, and I understand why they're having this consistent model, much the same way if you look at Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his setup, it's actually very, very Mm -hmm. similar. You can look at world leaders all around the world. They're typically using very similar setups. UK Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson is a good example of that. But yes, I think you can have a little bit of diversification, and I think you can certainly hold these press conferences in different places. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's talk about the mask issue for a sec here, Michael. Obviously, sure. uh, new new guiding uh, new guidelines coming out from uh, medical officials saying if you can't uh, maintain that two meter uh, social distancing and you're going out or in, into a public space, uh, it is a good idea to be wearing a mask. We've also seen shots of the prime minister wearing a mask, setting that example. Mm-hmm. Uh, by contrast, down to the United States. Donald Trump uh, will stand with a group of people. I think Ford was the situation where he was at in Michigan, and everyone else had a mask on, but he no, uh, no, no, did no, have a mask. No, he had a mask. As well. Hang on, I'm not finished yet. I'm not finished yet. And then and he, everyone had a mask on, but he, but then when questioned, he talked about how he was in the back of the plant, and at that point he did have a mask on, and I believe there is a photo of him wearing a mask. There is. Uh, his point, you know, the point that I'm making in regard to the press conference he was holding was he didn't want the press to see him in a mask. Obviously, uh, with Justin Trudeau, it's the opposite. And, you know, I I think it's a good idea to see these people setting an example. What do you what do you say about the two different uh, approaches to this? Yeah. And and look, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to uh, interrupt. It's just that, unfortunately, I've heard a few different people saying the same thing. I'm not justifying the way that Donald Trump has been handling the situation far from it when it comes to masks. But at least he did go out to do it. The problem is, as you alluded to, is that he wanted the press to be away from him. He didn't want any photographs around there because he just sees it as a sign of weakness, or at least that's the way I think I and others have interpreted it. I don't think it is a sign of weakness at all. I mean, if you have to wear it in a certain situation, that's understandable. And certainly a visit like that makes a lot of sense. So, 
while neither Canada and the United States have come to a point where masks are being required, that being that they're mandatory, mostly we've just sort of got the issue of being recommended in certain situations, as what you outlined directly, just to maintain certain social and physical <clears throat> distancing. But when you're in a certain um, place or location where you can't do that, it's best to have it, or at least it's recommended to have it. To be perfectly honest with you, Scott, and I said this a, a day or so ago on Twitter, there isn't a big difference between suggesting wearing a mask and recommending wearing a mask. There, there's, a, there's a very slight difference at best, because if you really look at the, the definition, if you want to go to Webster's or whatnot, it's still the same thing. It's still based on the judgment of the individual or the judgment of the group whether or not to wear a mask. There's no harm in doing so. Um, as I've said, and I think I've said it to you as well, there are studies by reputable academic sources, individuals, uh, universities, companies, etc., which have shown both the fact that masks are beneficial, including non-medical ones, and that masks don't necessarily help the equation all that much, including medical and non-medical ones. So right now we don't have it as being mandatory, so it's not a rule of thumb. We can still go outside and not wear a mask if we choose to, but a lot of people are now choosing to. So I think that's perfectly fine, and that's a specific debate that probably we'll have up until the day, if it ever occurs, that it's required when you go outside. But the way we're handling it, I think overall our country has handled it a bit better simply because our leaders have been willing to wear them or have not fought back as much when it comes to wearing a mask. Donald Trump, if, he had, if Donald Trump had said that he you know, preferred to wear it on a more limited basis, but would keep it for larger gatherings, election, you know, electioneering, or visits to the, the Ford plant and other places. I mean, obviously, there would still be elements of the media who'd be furious at him, but at least the debate wouldn't have grown as much as it had. The fact is that we haven't had a major debate about it, other than, you know, public health, um, health official Teresa Tam flipping back and forth on masks a couple times. Other than that, we really haven't had a wild debate about it because most of our political leaders have either said that they are wearing them, that they believe you should wear them, or they recommend that you wear them. And when you have that sort of an issue and, and mindset and frame, which mostly the leadership of this country has, whereas in the United States it's been kind of a mix-and-match policy, some saying it's fine, some saying it's great, some refusing to do it whatsoever, and some limiting the amount of time they do it, such as Donald Trump, the President of the United States. That's what makes it very different. All right, can't let you go, Michael, without asking you uh, recent developments in regard to China and Hong Kong. We all know that as of 1997, China uh, getting back control of Hong Kong. We're supposed to allow them, uh, uh, I guess, uh, continue on with a two-country or uh, with a uh, uh, two-party system here and 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 slowly let... Two to, yeah, that's exactly what I meant to say. Thank you. And, um, and and that many thought that over the years that China would be more like Hong Kong instead of vice versa. We know what has happened. We're certainly hearing now that uh, China is uh, very much moving forward with controlling uh, China even more, or sorry, Hong yeah. Kong even more, and inflicting their law on them. Where do you see this going? How is the world viewing this? Why now? I see it as being very problematic. And it's interesting to see a lot of uh, media and a lot of officials, both in Hong Kong and in the United States, Canada, and elsewhere, are all sort of suggesting that this could be the end of Hong Kong because the Chinese authority, 
or the Chinese, the grasp of the Chinese communist government over Hong Kong seems to be intensifying. Where does it go? Well, it's very unfortunate. I mean, even when Hong Kong went back under Chinese rule after the 99-year lease, so to speak, with uh, the UK or Britain expired, a lot of people said the same thing back in 97 that they're even still saying up until just a few days ago, which was how can you have the Chi- how can you have China and Hong Kong's economy working under the same model and the same umbrella when both of these countries have had di- very different views since the end of World War II when it comes to freedom, democracy, liberty, capitalism, and all these other different components. It's not worked perfectly. I mean, interviews and things that I've read, and probably you've read over the years as well in various publications, have suggested that while the Chinese weren't you know, taking their boots and stomping all over everyone in Hong Kong when they did things that were a bit different, there was always this leeriness, always a concern, especially from the Hong Kong business community, that if they overstepped their boundaries too much, God knows what would happen to them. And they just weren't willing, in many cases, to take that risk. Now what we're seeing, based on the photos, images, and all the problems that are happening, is that China is beginning to flex its political muscle very strongly. And unfortunately, Hong Kong's independence, or what little independence it had, is going to be lost very quickly. What is it good? You know, is this ter- is this a bad sign for things? Yes, I think it's going to become much worse there. We've already seen uprisings or different revolts in Hong Kong as well when China has tried to flex its muscle. Just recently, too, even before COVID-19 started, I think we talked about it as well. We saw some of these rallies and marches that have been going on for months. So, no, unfortunately, I think that Hong Kong is starting to lose this battle. But due to COVID-19, one, a lot of the countries around the world can't focus as much as they would like to. Two, we should still obviously support our friends in Hong Kong who believe in liberty and democracy and hope that they're able to survive this. And three, we have to somehow hope that China just retrenches to some extent and pushes back if world opinion moves against them, which is sort of what happened on a very low level a few months ago. So maybe that will help things. But right now, you know, the belief of two economies, one policy from 1997, all the people who were naysayers and said it could not last, unfortunately, it's starting to be proven to be accurate. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Be well. You too. Stay safe. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.